0: This is Fintech Takes, the podcast keeping you in the loop on all the latest fintech trends, news, and ideas. I'm Alex Johnson, creator of the Fintech Takes newsletter, your host, and self-confessed fintech nerd. Let's go. Hello, and welcome back to the Fintech Takes podcast. My name is Alex Johnson, the creator of Fintech Takes, and I'm thrilled to bring you another episode of not fintech investment advice. And Joining me, the people's favorite guest, a returning champ, the author of Fintech Brain Food, and my friend Simon Taylor. Simon, thanks for coming back. Thanks for being back, Alex.
1: We missed you whilst you are out on Paternity. It's so good to see you're alive and well and that everybody's doing
0: well. Excited to talk about some fintech companies today. have been saving up all of my takes and now i have just like a ton that i have to get out so i I have some you just got too many fintech takes didn't help myself yeah it's like my fingers were itching i couldn't wait to get back on a podcast so thrilled to be doing this with you and as listeners know hopefully by now what simon and i are going to do we're take turns introducing a couple of fintech companies that we think are interesting for various reasons and we're going to take turns talking about those We'll also spend a little bit of time at the end of the podcast manifesting a couple of fintech ideas into the ether that we think are interesting. And as always, it should be noted that while we jokingly call this podcast not fintech investment advice, this really truly is not fintech investment advice. So please don't take anything we say too seriously. Yeah, please don't. We're two guys with opinions and there's enough of those in the world, but hopefully
1: they're useful opinions and you learn some stuff and... We always learn something. I the reason I write up for fintech companies every week is because I learn something every time I see somebody new. Entrepreneurs keep doing stuff and they keep exciting yes. me and I'm weird and I get excited by that stuff. So let's jump in, man. Let's do it. Awesome. Well, as a guest, Simon, I will let you go first. Give me a fintech company. Okay. First fintech company is noodle.shop, which nice. sounds like you know what it is, but it's not a noodle shop. It's not something from Kung Fu Panda. Nor is it Master Uguay. real (laughs) Kung Fu Panda fans know. Noodle helps creators, freelancers, and solopreneurs collect sales with payment links. It helps them sell digital content, and it has an AI chat sidekick, because everybody does. They call themselves the solopreneur operating system. Now, users... So imagine I'm an influencer, creator type, and I can... Schedule paid calls. I can create digital content like ebooks and videos and paid courses. I can build subscriptions for a community and it's all available as an app. But here's the kicker not just on the App Store. As of iOS 17, it will be normal for you to be able to sideload apps after an EU regulation that I've long since forgotten the name of. And that it potentially means that the payments inside of Noodle Shop, this is what got me excited, could, if sideloaded, not necessarily go through Apple Pay and have to pay the 30% Apple tax. Ooh, 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 ooh. That got me intrigued. So there's two things here. There's an operating system that's mobile first for solopreneurs and that as a payments business. Kind of interesting to have that as infrastructure that's mobile first, and the whole ecosystem that exists around that. My goodness, you know about it, and the guys at Week are one way to do it. Noodle.shop dot shop is another way to do it. Um, you know, is that is that going to be more of a trend or is that saturated? Has the creator economy died? And number two, what do you think about this side loading thing? Is it going to take off? Is it too early to say? You're
0: kind of breaking my brain with this like side loading that's like now allowed because the EU is so far ahead of everyone else in terms of like trying to wrestle some fair rules into place. Obviously, everyone has been complaining about the Apple 30% tax for a long time. So super intrigued with that. First, on the operating system front, I think it's really interesting. Obviously, there's lots of companies, as you referenced, that are trying to make different aspects of that better. But what it reminds me of, just glancing at their website, which is very intriguing, they they call themselves the solopreneur super app, which is a lot of cool uh, fintech acronyms sort of jammed together, is it It kind of reminds me in a weird way of the early days of Square, but tuned to
2: digital-first solopreneur entrepreneurs, right? So
0: like, if you think about the sort of early day Square equivalent, it was like, we're going to give you a card reader that plugs in and everything that you need to do what we've envisioned as commerce right now, which was like, farmer's market or mowing someone's lawn or those sort of activities, everything you need to do that as a job is going to be sort of loaded into this one environment. And it's all sort of tuned around that. And obviously, Square's expanded a great deal since then, but you can kind of still see its roots as like that in-person solopreneur e-commerce functionality in a box that's like everything you need on one app, essentially. This seems very similar, but tuned to a slightly different class of entrepreneurs, right? Creators, people who are providing digital services, we have to send payment links. So looking at the operating system and all the functionality, again, I don't know that there's anything here that is revolutionary on its own, but I really like the way that it's all kind of packaged together as, you know, if you're just making up a scenario, like my brother, who's a public school teacher, and he gets the summers off, right? If he was doing some type of like creative writing or copywriting as like a little side business that he just did in the summer and I was to go to him and say okay you need to set up all of these different things in order to like take payments and in order to explain your business and like do all of these things what he would come back to me with is well things like shopify are probably overkill i could go to all of these individual tools and build my own website and then you know assemble my own sort of payment stack or i could give him something like this and it's sort of everything you need within one app so I like the idea of really packaging everything together, recognizing that there's all of these different sort of sub-segments within this world of sort of solopreneurs that, you know, probably all deserve slightly different package solutions. So I think that's really interesting. What do you think about that before we get into the, the Apple tax part? Yeah, the early
1: square metaphor is perfect because you go so far down the long tail That you pick up things that nobody else would want to look at. And there's a lot of folks that are creators, some of them may even have fintech blogs, that kind of want to go do this stuff, but eh, but, oh, but, you know, like I'm a dad and I got enough stuff going on in my life. Do I really want to do that? Like, yeah, does I feel it? And it's not something I even necessarily intend to monetize. So, like, that's even when the thought crosses my mind, the friction there is enormous. And that was the same for micro-merchants, it's like, ah, oh, cash only, cash only, cash only, cash only, uh, but all you do is you just plug this little thing in, and you're kind of good to go, and it swipes, and then the, you sort of grow with those customers, and you start to see it build. So it's the long tail first, and going way down the bottom end of the long tail, is the nature of disruption. Clayton Christensen's innovator's dilemma, you know, the long tail gets over-ignored because it's too expensive. So you segment the market, you go after people that are underserved and overcharged, and that's exactly what this is. And the overcharged point potentially leads to where the economics might come from if, if, and we don't know if they can over the long term, if this side
0: loading remains a thing. I completely agree with that. I mean, just again, looking at their website, they have things like chat as a paid service, right? So like if you're a creator and you know, someone wants to talk with you to pick your brain, right? Which is the email that we get sixteen times a week. There's a service that's built into this that allows you to chat asynchronously with someone, but as a paid functionality. Now, I know of lots of individual services that you can tune to do that, but none of them are built into this super app. By the same token, like if I wanted to create a digital content or course, there's like educational software that I could use, and I could create my own course, or there's that kind of built into this. So I, I like the idea of. Not necessarily having to have the absolute best in class of each one of these capabilities, but the sort of power of it all being sort of embedded into one place. On the sideloading thing, I mean, again, kind of breaks my brain, but I would think that this would be incredibly appealing, right? Because obviously for Noodle, not having to pay that tax is huge, but this is not exactly the like highest margin business. To build, right? I mean, like creators and people who are solopreneurs don't make a ton of money. A lot of them may be doing it really as a side hustle while having some other job. By the same token, I would imagine that Noodle's margin on however they're sort of charging for this, whether it's when they accept payments or doing something else, their margin's probably also not huge. So that 30% really hurts. Sometimes it doesn't hurt as much, but in this particular case, I would imagine that it hurts a lot. So I think being able to shave that off and being able to do it in a way that's not sketchy because it is in line with EU regulations, and it's something that's now sort of an accepted practice. I think that makes a ton of sense. I guess a question I would have for you, Simon, and maybe it's too early to say, is like, what is the consumer experience of sideloading something? Do you understand how that part works? No. And Apple are really, really good at maintaining moats,
1: whether they have it through lock-in or whether they have it through branding. The classic example is the blue bubble, you know, like nobody wants to be that green bubble person. Everybody defaults to the messaging app. So you default to it. And with the penetration you have in the US, then blue bubbles all the way. We can use iMessage and oh, oh, okay, that didn't send. Oh, okay. And by the way, WhatsApp is the default internationally, but it's not in the US and Apple maintains that grip and stranglehold through its branding, through what it says about its users, and through that sense of, like, identity and belonging and not wanting to be that person. So the experience they can create and craft should not be discounted. And for that reason, you know, the Apple tax is going to be absolutely fine. But can Noodle.shop give incentives? Can they create their own experience? Don't know. TBD. What does that experience normalize like? And that's where the big risk is here is, like, if you are going to go down this route, how do you do it successfully? And Apple are pretty good at getting rid of things they don't like. So how do you maintain it over the long term? But there's just this weird little chance of a platform shift and a a change in the landscape and not FinTech investment advice. When we look at these companies, we're looking for the lessons that might be instructive of the future, not necessarily evaluating
0: that company. And this could be instructive for the future. I think that as with all of these things, it's just about like consumer awareness and comfort right at the end of the day. And I think that particularly when it comes to sideloading apps or sort of bypassing app stores, you know, Apple spent now decades like teaching consumers about safety and like sort of associating app store walled garden with safety. And oh, you don't want to just load random stuff onto your device because it might you know, brick your phone and give you all of these viruses and blah blah blah. So and, and there's some truth to that, right? Like that's not a completely out of bounds thing to say. But it does, I mean, another analogy that's kind of interesting is it reminded me a little bit of data aggregation. In the early days, you could definitely find surveys where it's like, how comfortable are you as a consumer in connecting your bank account to this app? Yeah. And people would be like, like, nope, not gonna do that. That scares yeah. the shit out of me. Um <laughs> you know, I I think I remember talking to my mom about it, like maybe 15 years ago. And she was like, why would I ever do that? And she still uses Quicken. So she's sort of the long tail that hasn't moved over yet. But, you know, I think that there are things where it's just you have to wear people down sometimes, right? And, you know, consumers, once you can do an adequate amount of education, and importantly, and I think this is the lesson of data aggregation, show them the benefit on the other side. And that goes to your point about incentives and like, what's the benefit of going this alternative route to get this app on my phone, you can shift those things, right? And I think that, you know, the network effects that Apple has in place to prevent people from sort of going rogue, I don't know that they're maybe quite as strong in this area. Like, if I really want to use Noodle.shop, then I really want to use that one specific app because, like, my whole life as a creator or solopreneur is kind of oriented around use of that app it's the centerpiece of my experience using my phone at least professionally if it does become my operating system yeah, yeah. like if it does become my shopify i'm gonna use that thing like
1: i'm just gonna i'm gonna fight to use it it's it's, it's the incentive is that is it compelling enough that i'm just gonna walk through fires to go get that thing mm-hmm. go rogue you know like wake up choose violence and use an android device i don't know like <laughs> is anything possible
2: yeah bro.
0: Crazy, crazy talk. Um, So no, I think that's exactly the right way to think about it. And I think if you get enough apps that take this approach and provide that level of value, you might see things sort of turn a little bit, at least in the EU, and people get a little more comfortable doing this. So I appreciate you flagging this one. This one's a really interesting sort of initial sort of little pebble rolling down the hill. I love a pebble. Here for a pebble. All right, dude, hit me. Hit me. What's next? This one is called Crux. C-R-U-X. And I had never heard of these guys, but it's kind of interesting. So I'm going to give a little bit of a backstory just to explain what they do, because it's slightly complex, but stay with me. So the Inflation Reduction Act, which was passed in the U.S. recently, signed by Joe Biden, one of its main purposes is to help transition the U.S. to a clean energy economy, right? That's one of the primary focuses of it. And a big... Part of the way that they're planning to do that is tax credits for clean energy developers. So if you want to build a wind farm or do some sort of solar energy project, you can get tax credits for that. Now, obviously, tax credits for clean energy is not a new concept. We've been doing it for a
2: long time in lots of different geographies.
0: However, one of the things that's interesting about tax credits as an incentive mechanism is that they don't work for everyone, right? You sort of have to be a big enough company and make enough revenue where tax credits, deductions, the ability to take depreciation on assets, for those things to actually matter, right? So there's sort of a long tail of developers who would want to build clean energy projects, particularly like smaller ones that might be a little bit more community focused, where the economics just don't really make sense and tax credits, while they're nice really don't provide much actual financial benefit to those developers. So the impact of tax credits is sort of limited in terms of who it reaches. Now, as you might expect, the financial services industry, which is great at finding things like this and figuring out a way to make a market around it, there is a market around these tax credits. So there's something called tax equity financing, which I did not know anything about. But basically, it allows for large, sophisticated companies, uh, mostly big banks like a JPMorgan Chase or Bank of America, to work with clean energy developers to essentially buy equity in their project or their company. So the bank buys an equity stake in your project, and in exchange for the cash that they give you for buying that equity stake, you agree to essentially sign over to them those tax credits, and then they can take advantage of those tax credits essentially on your behalf, right? So It's kind of a way to create a market for these tax credits. Now, the problem with tax equity financing is that even though it works, it's not really optimal, right? Because only big banks do it as a market because it's kind of complex. You have to have all of the accounting and legal stuff sort of set up to deal with all of these little complexities. And from the bank's perspective, they really only want to work with large enough developers who have big tax credits that are worth it to them, right? And so again, it doesn't support the people it was intended to support in the first place, because they only want to do it with big companies. Yeah,
2: right, right. And even like big,
0: big developers, sometimes they have to get like, three or four different solar projects and aggregate them together to make it sort of worth
2: the bank's time.
0: So it doesn't really address that long tail problem. Plus, it has this sort of weird moral hazard attached to it, because once the bank gets involved in the project and is an equity owner, they actually have influence over the project. So the original developer who's really passionate about building a wind farm or building these, you know, solar panels or doing some hydroelectric thing, they actually get a little bit disaggregated from their project when they lose some control over it. So there is a solution to this problem, which is in the Inflation Reduction Act, they introduced a new ability for developers to essentially monetize tax credits called transferability. So the way the transferability works is very simply, if you are a developer that gets access to these credits, you can sell them for cash to any third party. So instead of having to go through this very complex mechanism, you can just say, you know what, it's more economical for me, I want to build this project, I want to build this small little community solar project that really doesn't have a huge, huge financial upside, it's not going to generate enough revenue to make tax deductions worth it. I'm just going to sell these tax deductions for cash, right? So pretty cool, expected to have a really big impact on just sort of the liquid market and the nature of this sort of secondary tax credit market. However, the question is, how does one go about finding buyers and sellers of these new clean energy tax credits? Yeah, you need this thing like a marketplace or something. You need like, yeah, you need a marketplace. You need a a place that gives you tools to do due diligence to make sure that you're getting a fair price You need for the ability for others in the ecosystem who have maybe been sitting on the sidelines. Think about smaller banks that maybe want to get into this space, but really have not had the level of sophistication that a JPMorgan Chase has to do tax equity financing. Enter Crux. So, Crux is basically trying to provide a secondary marketplace for clean energy tax credits. And essentially, they want to provide that same sort of mechanism that we already have a lot of in financial services for. You know, mortgage servicing rights or for loan syndication. Think of all of the secondary markets that sort of exist within the financial services ecosystem. This would just be another one of those marketplaces designed to essentially bring buyers and sellers together and make that marketplace work much more efficiently. So I have some thoughts on this, but just like pure reaction, what do you think about this one? I love
1: cash for doing the right thing generally. And The problem with cash for doing the right thing, whenever the tax man is involved, is the right thing comes with strings attached. And so I need to manage all of my accounting. But it sounds like the cash for the tax incentive is a much better starting point. But then exactly, to your point, you need a marketplace. I wonder about what due diligence is involved. That was the first thought that went through in my head. My second thought was there's an obvious place in which you are building an organization and you need cash. And there was that whole boom in buy now, pay later for startups and mm-hmm. the sort of non-dilutive funding where it's a venture debt and it's all of that sort of stuff, In but provided by SaaS companies instead of provided by a bank. And people are looking for things to sell other than equity especially if you're building something. And if you're not venture-backed, if you're doing something that isn't necessarily going to be that big and is more community-focused, you still need cash to build the project. And you can go get a line of debt, but this is another way to get ignition capital, to get revenue coming in the door, which is kind of what was intended. My fear is, a little bit like how carbon credits have been abused, some of the most Mm. best-scoring ESG carbon-based businesses are the largest polluters in the world so if you make a game people will play it and they'll game it and so electric car manufacturers are less esg compliant because they're not trying to play that game they're just producing something that has a different impact on the world versus people that are playing the financial game i worry about creating a financial game here that will be played but that's a second order consequence if the first order consequence is we get a lot more community projects doing things with clean tech, awesome. Here for it, want to see it happen, want that to go along. I wonder about the due diligence side of it. So did you discover anything in your journey on how they do the due diligence, how they get a bank comfortable if they're going to be the buyer? Who
0: else the buyers might be? What are the strings attached?
2: Yeah, so really good
0: question. And that's exactly my same fear as well. I think that there's two things, right? One is just, are you getting a good deal, right? So from a pricing perspective, you might imagine that the old sort of tax equity financing structure was pretty opaque, right? I mean, it kind of reminds me a little bit of VC and that it's like, oh, you know, I'm a first time founder and I go to a VC firm and they're like, here's the term sheet that we're offering you. And if you don't know what you're doing, like
2: they can put anything in front of you and you're like,
0: okay, it looks great. And you sign away way more equity than you should have based on all the characteristics of the round that you're raising and I think that these types of clean energy projects have probably suffered a little bit from that same lack of transparency and so I think one aspect of it that I definitely saw Prox talking about was we just want to bring like more transparency to this market and make it easier for people to understand like what is the value of these different tax credits and you know obviously, there are different tax credits for different types of projects. And so there's a lot of like nuance associated with that. And so just purely from an information asymmetry perspective, I think that's a big part of it. And then the other part, and this sort of verges into another concern that I have kind of long term is, a lot of this is built around specifically the Inflation Reduction Act, right? And so there are very specific guidelines in that legislation around how do you prevent fraud associated with these tax credits? How do you ensure that the company that's buying the tax credit, they're not allowed to then resell the tax credit to someone else? It can't be continuously resold. It has to be sold once and then the company that buys it uses the tax credit. But like, how do you enforce that? So there's a lot of like guidelines that the IRS and others now that they're in the implementation phase for the IRA are working through. And I think those guidelines are going to have to be programmatically executed by crux and by any other platforms that enter this space and that sort of brings me to another question that i have which is i'm always a little nervous about particularly very early stage startups and crux is very early i think it just raised some um, a seat around being built entirely around a specific piece of legislation right because as we know legislation changes things can get rolled back and so this setting is a really smart way to bootstrap an entry into this market and hopefully create a very robust ecosystem for these tax credits. But I do wonder about like what is CREPS's roadmap and where are they ultimately trying to get to? And it kind of goes back to what you were saying about getting
2: financing for your clean energy
0: project. And over time, I think what I would like to see evolve is more of a generalized marketplace where, yeah, tax credits are one way to do that. And if you're starting this project, we'll help you understand what tax credits you are maybe able to get, how you might be able to monetize them, what's a fair price. But we also act as a marketplace for banks that want to do some type of financing for clean energy projects, for DC firms that want to invest in new clean energy technology, for maybe even like a way to aggregate consumer deposits from partner banks that have promised their customers that their deposits will only go towards funding clean energy projects, right? So I wonder if over time it can be more of an aggregated marketplace for clean energy demand. And this is the way that you just bootstrap that and get to that vision. But I I am a little nervous about it being so closely tied to one specific piece of legislation. Well, let's hope. Let's hope. And tied to legislation, we
1: saw that with PSD2 in Europe. And there were a lot of companies born and a lot of them didn't succeed. It's possible, though. And they call it venture for a reason. So, you know, nothing ventured, nothing gained. Let's venture... Ventures some more prospects out there.
2: So what's your next company? Uh,
1: so the next company is called Vesta. They are a lending system of record that aims to allow lenders to build a mortgage journey that's 100% digital. They can build customized workflows to create more efficient and way more bespoke lending processes. So I saw this and I thought, wow, you don't see a lot of people trying to build new lending systems of record, or if you do... They tend to come from the industry and not be venture backed in the, you know, it's somebody that worked at a big lending origination system or a system of record provider. And there's a reason why these things tend to have a really strong moat, which is banks don't like changing these things at all. It can be extremely career limiting, if not career ending for CEOs, if changing systems goes wrong. And so the nobody got fired for buying IBM thing really rings true when it comes to the system of record. The system of record is what gets reported to the regulator. An older system of record, the vendor might sell it as regulated. There is no such thing as regulated software. What there is are other financial institutions that are regulated that have been using that software for decades And it manages that one random law from 19-diggity-two that if you mess it up in your next examination, you're going to get a big old fine. So there's that whole like low-risk thing. And Then the other side of it is, when are you going to change systems? You're going to take all of your 30-year mortgages and you're going to migrate them across? What happens if something goes wrong? What happens if the new system doesn't work? You're going to have no money coming in the door. You're not going to be selling any mortgages. So this is why those legacy core systems tend to stick around and are very, very hard to change. So I've heard people in financial services and bankers call the system of record the golden source because it represents the truth. Like there are lots of other systems out there, there are lots of other processes, but the golden source, the system of record is that thing that tells the truth because it's what gets reported to the regulator, it's what we reconcile against, that's the thing. And we might pork in a whole bunch of other functionality to it, but it's the biggest moat in financial services is to be a system of record for a bank. And we've seen companies come along and do it, but rarely are they venture-backed. So this one was interesting. So there's there's also something kind of interesting about the the founder team here. It was former engineers from Blend. And of course, you know, might know Blend as... They were sort of providing digital front ends on top of legacy call systems for mortgage originators and lenders and and many, many others. And so they're starting out with new greenfield lending. If you're just an upstart, you're going to get into lending. You don't have a system of record. They're going to sell into you. And my thought was, seems like interest rates are up. People want to get into lending. It might be an interesting time. If you can finance your lending, if you can syndicate your loans, if you can get a low enough cost of capital, there might be a business out there, but there's less mortgage buyers than there were before. There's high interest rates. You know, it's not the fastest moving market, but somebody's going to need a new mortgage at some point. Somebody's still going to buy a house. This industry isn't going to be, and
0: maybe new systems, new lenders might be the way to do it. So what are your thoughts? Well, I love Anything mortgage related, I just sort of geek out on. Um so yeah, I think this is fascinating. I mean, it's really interesting in the mortgage space because you basically have point of sale systems and loan origination systems. So you have POS's and LOSs. And the POS is, as you're saying with like blend, that's like that front-end digital experience. And I think that that's where over the last 10 years, 15 years even. That's where a lot of mortgage lenders have been investing is we're going to modernize the front end. We're going to make it, you know, this is like we want to compete with rocket mortgage. Essentially, we want to have a rocket mortgage like experience that we offer. So point of sale systems have been really hot. By contrast, loan origination systems, as you're saying, they have to be the system of record. They have no fault tolerance at all. Or I should say they have have very high fault tolerance. Like they need to work. They can't screw up this is really where like the regulation and mortgage touches the technology is in the loan origination system. It's also where the underwriters touch everything, right? So while the customer is the one interacting largely with the point of sale system or mortgage brokers or what have you, the underwriters working at the mortgage lender, they're the ones who log into this loan origination system every single day. And, you know, it's funny, but like one of the things that I've observed for a long time in the fintech infrastructure space is, where you have human beings who work at a lender, work at a financial institution, they're working with a system, the fact that the system is sort of old and complex and hard to use is actually a benefit for those employees, not a drawback. And what I mean by that is, like, if you're the person in the office who knows how to work the old copy machine that no one else knows how to work, A, you take a certain amount of pride in that, and B, it gives you a lot of job security, right? Because no one can just come in and replace you. So old systems have this weird as you're saying, sort of lifespan sitting inside these companies, because we know it's a system of record that works, it's compliant, it doesn't break. And the people who use it, like it, know how to use it, and sort of take a certain amount of pride and job security out of their knowledge of how to use the system. So when you come in and you pitch something new, you're sort of working against all of those things. To your point, though, about timing, the thing I think is really interesting about this, and I this is sort of a larger take that's been brewing in my head, but I actually think that like counter-cyclically, the best time to build and sell new like lending infrastructure is right now, right? Because rates are high and particularly in a space like mortgage, volume has just sort of fallen down, right? A lot of mortgage companies have
2: gone out of business or they've had to cut
0: back. And a lot of them are at the place where they're like, look, we have, you say, 25 employees who underwrite all of our loans.
2: We have so few
0: loans that we don't really care about like automation. And we don't really care about like, all of these things, like those 25 people are perfectly busy. We don't really want to fire anyone else. Like we want them to be sort of working on this stuff right now. That's actually a really good time to swap out one system for another system, right? So if you've been meaning to replace your loan origination system, doing it while the market is kind of down actually makes a lot of sense, right? Because when the market is booming and everyone's really, really busy, that's the worst time to swap out a system and go, hey, loan underwriters, we need you to learn this entire new thing. And they're like, I'm so busy, I don't even know what I'm doing. But right now is actually a really good time because volume is low. You're taking less of a risk. Maybe you have fewer employees that you're going to piss off by switching out a system. And just looking at Vesta, they're emphasizing the right things, right? They're emphasizing modularity. They're emphasizing the ability for this to be like an open platform that can connect to other systems. They're emphasizing the fact that it's really configurable and that all the workflows can be sort of tuned exactly the way you want. So, what you want when you're coming in is for it to be, okay. This is now the new foundation that everything that you want to do in the mortgage space, new point of sale system, new servicing approach that you're going to take, whatever it is, all of those can hook to this new system It has open APIs. It's really easy to configure. And as you're getting your loan underwriters used to it, you can configure that workflow experience to them and their preferences. You can even have multiple different types of workflows and sort of queues and stipulations depending on the preferences of the underwriter. So it can be a much more tailored
2: experience.
0: And I think now sort of maybe unintuitively is the best time for that, rather than it being like, oh, the mortgage market is down. Who would want to buy this type of stock? We're like, now is actually the perfect time in my mind. Let me throw another idea at you. Your good friend and
1: former colleague Ron Shevlin published a Forbes piece recently that said the vast majority of new checking accounts and therefore deposits are going to chime and PayPal if you are chime and indeed paypal you have banking license ambitions or a banking license you can monetize that in really interesting ways if you could launch some lending products the lending products you might build would probably look a little bit different to the high street banks and to the mega banks and to all of those folks you're not just going to go with a vanilla mortgage you're going to go with something that's maybe a bit more niche a bit more bespoke that needs a bit more customization and sure you can build it all in-house but If this is ready to go, why wouldn't I use it? And think about the next level down after Chime and PayPal. What about all of the folks that are going for a charter right now that have a profitability problem? What about all those organizations? So as you think about greenfield lenders, and you think about the classic model of, you know, mortgages are the cash cow and consumer, but you got to get those deposits to get it done. Well, I got the deposit side figured out. Like, there's no lack of deposits. There's no lack of people opening an account. What well, there is is a lack of ways to monetize that. So go buy an old mortgage book, as Starling did. That's what that's what, that was one one route to go. Another route to go might
0: be take a new tech platform and do something interesting with it. Absolutely,
2: Absolutely. yeah. Well, and this is. I mean, I mean,
0: fintech companies like to build stuff themselves. Oftentimes, mortgage would be one of those areas I'd be just incredibly nervous to build something myself, particularly if I'm a new to <laughs> business. It's just it's scary, right? I mean, there's a lot of very specific regulation. I mean, it's like mortgages over here and every other consumer lending category is over here, right? Like They're just worlds apart in terms of compliance, workflows, regulation, reporting, it's just the structure of the loans, how the secondary market works, the data that you have to have, the sort of complexity of underwriting, like it's a completely different ballgame. So if there's one area I wouldn't build myself and would try to find a new modern system where all that sort of IP is already built into it. Mortgage is definitely the one. So I completely agree with that. Can I give you my last company? Let's do it. Let's let's rock it through it.
2: Okay. So last one is Tint. Uh,
0: the INT, they are providing embedded insurance. So the way they describe themselves is as a full insurance operating system for startups and other digital
2: platform businesses.
0: So the basic idea here is that all of these new sort of digital platform businesses, the Ubers of the world, the Shopify's of the world, these marketplaces, these P2P platforms, all these new things that we're developing as a part of the digital economy. One of the benefits of them is they build these sort of fundamentally new products or new sort of value propositions for customers. The challenge in doing that, though, is that by designing new products, you're also introducing new risks. And as any good business, if you're introducing risks that your customers have to deal with, you might want to offer protection products, insurance, guarantees associated with those products to help sort of mitigate those risks and make customers feel more comfortable. The problem, though, is insurance companies are even slower moving and more conservative than banks are, right? They're one of the few companies that's like below banks on all of those like ranking lists. And insurance companies, I know this to be true, having talked to some founders that are building in this space, they're really hard to go to and say, hey, we want to get insurance for this product we're building. But it doesn't really fit into any of the established insurance product categories that you have. Interesting. And the insurance company go, okay, great. Well, you're small, a so we don't really care about you, and b this is a weird, novel thing that would take some work on our part to like underwrite the risk of. So no thanks, we'll just pass. So if you're someone like, as an example, and this is a real example from a company that Tim works with, if you're a peer-to-peer motorcycle rental platform, right, where Motorcycle owners rent to other motorcycle drivers their motorcycles and help sort of enjoy like really fun motorcycle trips in different states. Well, okay, obviously there's risk there. If you're renting someone else's motorcycle and
2: driving it around,
0: you want to be able to insure that risk. But if that platform goes to a traditional insurance company, they're not going to have a really good time.
2: So enter someone like
0: Tint, and basically they've designed a platform where they try to sort of offer a very flexible way of designing a protection product, an insurance product, that fits with the exact needs of your customers and your platform. So you can offer it as a one-time add-on when someone's checking out. You can bake it into the product itself, or it can be like a bundled premium version of the product where you have this insurance or protection kind of built into it. And the idea here is that they offer not just a lot of flexibility in terms of the type of insurance product, but also the amount of risk that the company can take on. So you can do something very simple where you say, okay, I want to design the insurance product this way. And Tint essentially operates as kind of the interface between you and the insurance companies that they work with on the back end to say, okay, we'll help you design it. And that it'll flow nicely into these insurance companies that are willing to underwrite the risk
2: associated with this.
0: And they sort of act as that. It looks like program management insurance. It's sort of program management.
2: It totally is. So that's
0: one way of doing it. And then the other way of doing it that I think is really
2: interesting, kind of reminds me of banking as a service in a sense,
0: is they also can say, okay, you, the company, you actually feel comfortable in offering this product, and you want to underwrite more of the risk yourself because you have proprietary data on your customers and you want to maybe see this insurance product as actually kind of a profit center or an area where you can actually generate some revenue. So Tint is also its own property and casualty insurance company. They can actually offer insurance directly as well. And my sense, just having looked through their website, is that if you, the company that they're working with, want to essentially fund and pay for the insurance and make that a product that you're comfortable underwriting yourself, you can do that through them and through their sort of licenses as a PNC insurance company. So they give you sort of a range of different options for how you can offer these products. And the overarching value proposition is you, as this company, know, hey, I have some risk here inherent to my product that I want to mitigate, but I don't really know anything about insurance or how to design or underwrite an insurance product that would make sense for this. They sort of sit down with you with a blank sheet of paper and design out what that product looks like and then help you execute it. What are your thoughts? Huh. Embedded Insurance has been the boy that cried wolf
1: for the longest time. It's been there, it's been will it ever arrive, will it ever show up, and it feels like the time is now. There's a UK equivalent to this called Cover, but with a Q, so Q-O-V-E-R, and they just announced their Series C in this market. It's a really strong Series C, and they have companies like Revolut as a customer, They also have Deliveroo in the United Kingdom. And Deliveroo is essentially like DoorDash Instacart. It's massive. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, they've built exactly this. And they're getting up rounds. They're getting revenue. They're building meaningful businesses. And I think the value proposition here makes complete, complete sense. And so they're sort of now in 32 countries across Europe through one API. They work with any major insurer. They do a lot of the same sort of stuff. And I think this is just, it's a product whose time has come. If you are, again, a non finance company and you're looking to grow your revenues, insurance is a great way to do it. The canonical case study here is a company called Ping An. Ping An is Chinese, and Ping An cha- translates roughly to safe and well. So, if what they did, which is really interesting, they started out as a company that sells insurance and financial products but they actually built the largest car auction marketplace and the largest doctor's set of practices in China. And then what they do is they were also offering that safe and well. So if you buy a car, of course you get the insurance. As part of it, it's safe and well. Like it's just baked right in. That's how you buy a car. Of course it is. And all of that digital infrastructure didn't exist, of course. So they were able to build that ecosystem. China is the Galapagos of financial services because it built an entirely digital (laughs) ecosystem. It's completely different to anywhere else. Its rules don't apply. But the lessons there are instructive, which is just as you embedded payments, why wouldn't you want to embed insurance? Well, insurance is one of those last to fall, hardest to change industries. You know, the lawyers of London market and the insurance market still have briefcases. This is the old boys network, the old boys club, Certain pubs around right in and around that whole laden late whole market is still where most of the insurance business in Europe and a lot of the world gets done. And yes, it is
0: changing. Finally, finally, and that's exciting.
2: It absolutely is. Yeah, I mean, I'll just emphasize
0: some of the points that you you already made. I mean, the embedded insurance one is a concept that makes so much sense in theory. Who wants to buy insurance? Just get it embedded with the thing you're already doing. I did a survey of consumers about different embedded finance use cases a while ago, just asking like, hey, hypothetically, what might you be interested in? Would you like this? Would you like this? And I assumed that embedded insurance would just kill, like it would do the best out of all of them. Again, who wants to buy insurance? It actually did the worst. And I don't really know what that means, but it kind of speaks to what you're, you're saying about just like, when will this idea's time come? And what will it look like when that happens? Because there is this weird resistance, I think, on the part of at least some consumers that, like, if you're thinking about safety, you think a little bit about brand. And if you think about brand, do you think about the brand of the company you're buying the product from? Or is the brand associated with the company that's providing the insurance? And is that separate? And obviously, traditional insurance companies have spent, I don't know, billions of dollars on marketing designed to exactly sort of build that moat around brand and around trust. So I think there is an interesting consumer... not going to say objection, that's probably a little strong, but like unfamiliarity that still needs to be somewhat overcome. And maybe it's just, you know, death by a thousand cuts. You have to just kind of keep at it until they change. I don't know there. The other thing on Tint, much like anyone who's building in this space, is it's the Stripe model of, we're going to work with all of these sort of upstart digital platforms, and we succeed when they succeed. And so making our bets on these companies... And I will say Tint in their specific case already has some very big clients that have already grown quite a bit. So the playbook seems to be working. But you really need to sort of get in on the ground floor of these rocket ships that are going up because that's the only way you're really going to like get to scale. And I think that also brings in the other aspect of it, which is just if you are providing the actual insurance policies, if the company wants to sort of fund it themselves and it's going through Tint you are also taking on the risk associated with those companies. And so I would imagine that a big part of their business model is built around Okay, every company that we onboard, we tend to want to understand their risk and have our own sort of underwriting opinion on the risk and you know the portfolio of customers that they might be bringing to us. Because even though they might be funding it, if it's a startup and they bring us a lot of risk and they go out of business, we ultimately are going to be on the hook for that. So I do think there is much as like starting a lending company or a mortgage company or anything, there is a little bit of asymmetric downside risk associated with that. So that's the other area I would think they'd want to be careful. But I'm with you. This feels like an idea that it's time has come or it's about to come. And I find them pretty intriguing. Let's see.
1: All right. It's time to manifest a couple of fintechs.
2: It is. Do you want to go first?
1: Yeah. So the thing I want is not a specific fintech company, but I just want to see financial markets and capital markets get disrupted. Now, you think about financial markets, it's the DTCC clears, on average, about $2.4 quadrillion dollars every year, and <laughs> the bond market is something like $175 trillion. We all love a big, giant, target-addressable market, a big TAM. Yeah, this no, no. These dwarf anything out there, and a lot of it's notional, it's not real value, it doesn't necessarily represent revenue, caveat, caveat, caveat. It's also Mm -hmm. the last one to fall after insurance. And the reason it's hard to disrupt is you need a lot of knowledge. You need to have worked inside the industry. And I'm just starting to see things tickling at the edges. I'm seeing private banks. I'm seeing hedge funds for consumers. I'm seeing little bits starting to come, but I want somebody to go build this generation's Goldman or Morgan Stanley. Where's that coming from? And I think you're out there I think there's probably a few people listening who will say I'm it and they're doing like a wedge or they're doing a feature. You know, it might be somebody like a Titan, you know, it, it, there's a whole bunch of folks who would claim to be it, but I want a capital markets bank. I want a custodian. I want a broker. And maybe they start with the newer asset classes like tax credits. Maybe they start somewhere else in the NFT world. Crazy. I know maybe an investment bank for the internet. That'd be cool but let's let's move that way. I love that
0: one. Yeah, I mean, I think what you said is exactly right. You have to understand every part of that ecosystem if you want to disrupt it, right? Because not only do you have to have a wedge or a feature or a specific thing that you can use to start moving volume in your direction slowly over time and get that rock rolling down the hill, you can't just randomly pick that. You have to understand the dynamics of all the different players in the ecosystem, and it's a massive ecosystem. There's all these competing interests, and so you have to understand every nook and cranny of it. And I guess it relates to the maturity of fintech, right? Fintech is now a playbook that people who've worked in industries for decades can pick up and use to disrupt those industries. Whereas before, it was much more of an outsider coming in with no real knowledge of the market trying to disrupt it. So maybe this is right around the corner. Hey, hear. All right. Manifest something.
2: All right. Mine is real quick.
0: Very much more specific. I think it would be nice if there was someone out there who competed with Triad. So for those who don't know, Triad is a piece of software that uh, FICO, full disclosure, a company I used to work for, offers to banks that essentially is sort of the big product in the space that helps banks manage their credit card portfolios. And so, you know, I think a lot of fintech infrastructure has been built on either side of this. So a lot of new fintech infrastructure has been built saying, okay, we're going to make the account opening and origination process way easier, as we talked about before with mortgage. Or on the back end, we're going to work, and this is a very cool area, we're going to work on modernizing the collections. And when something goes wrong with the customer, we're going to have a better, more digital first kind of collections and recovery process. There's still a huge middle between those two. I open the account, and between that and I go into collections, there's basically the life cycle of that credit card. And there's all kinds of decisions that get made during that process. There's, You know, simple decisions like, should I authorize this payment? There's more complex decisions like, you know, what product should I try to cross sell this customer next based on their usage? What marketing message should I send to them in order to incentivize their utilization of the card? How should I tweak their rewards in order to get them moving in the way that I want? Maybe if we're getting close to collections and I see some signs of financial distress, can I do a pre collection set of messages to get them back on track and improve their financial health? There's a world of decisions there that could benefit from analytics, more sophisticated you know, machine learning, and the ability to make more complex decisions, the ability to have more granular control. And all of that decisioning is all run through some pretty old technology that's largely distributed through legacy core banking providers. So as we modernize some of those core systems, as banks and fintech companies sort of modernize other parts of the stack, This is an area I don't think we should forget about because there's a ton of value there and we're dealing with pretty old technology that probably needs some competition. Let's see some competition in the deep infrastructure.
1: Thank you so (laughs) much, Alex, for bringing that to my attention. I didn't know that Triad existed. And if it did, I thought it sounded like something from some sort of mafia group. So I learned something.
2: (laughs)
0: Absolutely. Well, my pleasure. Thank you for joining me and for uh, dekeying out on various fintech companies. We will have to have you back again soon. But in the meantime, be well and thanks for joining us. Thank you, sir. Thank you for listening to this episode of Fintech Takes. Stay up to date with emerging companies and the latest fintech trends by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. And if you love fintech takes, please tell a friend.